Welcome to the Our Innergate podcast. We're leading the education rebellion for nurses by nurses. Your hosts, Karen DeMarco and Antra Boyd, asked me to do this intro because of my sexy voice. You're welcome. Get ready to be enlightened, entertained and inspired by experts who don't just think outside the box. They blow it up and want to resuscitate your love for learning. When you're finished, listen for instructions on how to check off one of those CE credit boxes by heading over to the rnegade.pro website. Keep your knickers on. The show is about to start. Actually, knickers are optional. We'll never know. Have you always been the squirrel? I don't think I've ever asked you that. Why did you just grimace after you said that? <laughs> well, because I don't think I, I mean, you talk about ADHD in your adult life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, um, every, you know, they do the typical hearing screenings in elementary school, you know, when you put the, you put the headphones on and the different oh, yeah. tones, right. Uh-huh. And you raise the hand. I always had extra. Because the teachers didn't know if I could actually hear what they were saying. And the truth is, I did it. Like, I'm the same today. If I'm reading a book, well, you've seen it. If I'm reading a book I'm interested, I'm either hyper-focused or not. It's, it's more like, a, here we go again. I'm scrolling off. I have a functional psychiatrist friend who told me, Carrie, you don't have ADD. You have attention deficit. You have attention abundance disorder. He said, when the whole world disappears, when you're interested in something, that's, that's not a problem with focus. That's hyper-focus, but literally, and I was like that as a kid, if I'm into something, my hair could be on fire and somebody would have to talk down the shoulder and go, um, can you do something about that smell? You know, like I, yeah, I disappear. My brother's like that too. Oh, they are. Yeah. Well, Mike is, yeah. Just the world disappears if I'm in a book or if I'm in something I'm interested in. Yeah. So where does the, if the diagnosis is ADHD, which maybe it's not, but where does the, um, because you. Because if, if the fire hose isn't being aimed and there's nothing that I am hyper-focused on, it's always trying to find a target. <laughs> <laughs> So, so basically having people in your life that can kind of contain the squirrel in the cage is helpful. Uh, well, you would know that. And you picked it up really quickly. Remember you're over at my house and like, what is she doing? We're trying to get some kind of project done or something. I kept, kept getting distracted by shiny objects. And you said, here, you sit down, put this laptop in your lap. You write. Oh yeah. And you just got, you zeroed in and you yeah. got focused. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to know about Karen and how you got to be, uh, where you are right now sitting in this chair, having a podcast with me. So tell me, um, you told me a little bit about what it was like to be a kid. Why did you become a nurse? Cause my mom told me to literally, which actually is, is a good start. I always wanted to be a writer and I always had a, a certain, a style of writing that's very conversational. And I loved, I love words. Like 
not just like the sound of them, but like the, like serendipity, <laughs> you know, dipity and uh, grandfather clock, <laughs> grandfather clock. Like I love the word, not just about, not just the word, but what it means. It makes, it makes me feel like uh, something's looking out for me, but it also has something to do with time. Like I was telling my daughter the other day, she came in my office and was looking at my books and she wanted something to read. I'm like, fiction or nonfiction? She's like, which one is fiction? Is that the real one? I'm like, no, that's nonfiction. <laughs> and we were talking about Dean Koontz, uh, the author Dean Koontz, loves Stephen King and Dean Koontz, but Dean Koontz has this ability to, um, th- there's this character he writes about, uh, Odd Thomas. And Odd Thomas is a great character. And actually I told Lucia that it reminds me of her boyfriend, Sammy and her, cause the first book is like Odd Thomas and his girlfriend are going on this adventure together. But Odd Thomas has the ability to see, I can't remember what the name of, uh, furies, maybe demon dogs. Like, but if there's something evil afoot or something evil or bad is about to happen, these demon dogs come, they're like shadows. Um, but he's the only one who could see him. So he has this blessing and curse that he can kind of tell when something really bad is going to happen because they start gathering. And so in the book, he follows them down to the docks. And, and I'm telling Lucia this, he follows all these furies or whatever they're called down to the docks. And Kuntz describes the ocean as darkness distilled into a liquid. And I said, do you see how it's not just how the ocean looks at night? But he's also taking the darkness, the evil that's afoot in, you know, in one sentence, he's in, he's just capturing so much. And I, you know, I, that fascinates me about writing and people's ability. You know, there's, I, I love, uh, I like to do that, you know, and it doesn't happen often, but like the word that came through me once that I'd never heard before. I wanted to, uh, in a different way, talk about this feeling of awe an exuberance I had, like I'm like my aorta is going to explode. I am so filled with gratitude and blood's just going to start shooting out of my nose, but that wasn't quite right. And it was soul boner, (laughs) you know, when shit like that comes, like it's a, uh, I just love that. But anyway, um, I love that too. (laughs) Yeah. That's I, I love, uh, wanted to make a living coming up with things like that. But uh, I got into University of Michigan. I was walking in early um, and I was walking down the beach with my mom and her twin sister who they went to Georgetown and they're also nurses. <laughs> and, you know, Karen, what do you want to, what do you want to do when you go to, what are you going to go to Michigan for? I kind of wanted to be a writer and I kind of look, you know, I don't know, journalism or writing or, you know, something like that, you know, English. And they look over at each other and my mom said, care. We love how you write. We've always loved how you write, but you know, in order to make any money as a writer, you have to be a really good writer. Oh. <laughs> and she didn't mean it like that. She no, meant like but- a standout and, you yeah. know, um, because so few people actually ever make it, you know, and I, I know that's what she was saying. She wanted me to have something secure. Right. Why don't you be a nurse? We're nurses and we love it. It's a great career to have when you want kids and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't even ask myself if 
I wanted to be a nurse. I was always, you know, interested in helping people and, you know, kind of gravitated toward that kind of stuff. And so I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll do that. And before I know it, I'm in nursing school. I, I think that's so interesting that, you, that, because it's similar to me, like you either go to school and become a nurse or you wait tables and do drugs. Like there was no <laughs> thought about what I really wanted to do. Right. Like it was yeah. just like, oh, okay. And then off you go. But yeah, to me, the choices look like become a writer, disappoint my <laughs> and failure, a failure writer, <laughs> make no money and disappoint my parents, which was a no way because right. I really want people to like me <laughs> or a nurse. That, <laughs> that'll tick all the boxes. I mean, it's sort of the same wait tables and do drugs or become a failure writer and disappoint. Your <laughs> yeah, but it, but then it, but then it became Okay. I mean, I remember sitting on graduation day, um, May, 1996, sitting on the porch of the house I lived on. I don't want to be a nurse. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? And then I kind of like picked myself up and dusted myself on, you know, off. And it was like, okay, if I'm going to be a nurse, you've heard me say it like this. <laughs> You're going to be the best I'm going to be a nurse. super nurse. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to be Something, you know, I, I had this immediate picture of uh, me walking in slow motion with a flight suit and an Aerosmith yeah. song playing in the that's background. The <laughs> yeah, like that's, and that's where my mind went. Squirrel, fire hose. <laughs> I was going to do that and nothing could stop me until I checked that box. And But it seemed like it served you well because you've said before to me that you know, when you were in the excitement of the trauma and that like you could just focus and you could just perform. And so you were probably really good at what you did. Yeah. Which was a a blessing, I guess. It was like a meant to be kind of thing. Cause I was when everybody else around me, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> ICU, uh, you know, uh, emergency, you know, uh, a cabbage cardio, um, a cabbage, that's a heart for those of you listening at home, cabbage surgery this is like kind of the nickname we call for um, a bypass surgery. But sometimes like things would go wrong, right? And the surgeons had to like open up the chest in the room and there's a nick in the aorta and there's blood like shooting up toward the ceiling and everyone's going, when in danger, right. when in doubt, run in circle, scream and shout. I'm like, <sighs> like right. the world disappears, you know? That's and sort I, of a superpower, I got to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it has been a tremendous asset in my life and a tremendous curse, but I've learned to embrace it and, you know, embrace the squirrel. Um, but yeah, I feel most calm and normal when I'm in those high intensity, high adrenaline situations. I feel normal. I feel calm. I feel this is my, this is how things should be all the time. (laughs) Like Which I just is took a, a Valium. Bit like, yeah, kind of crazy, but you didn't stay in nursing. So if that was where you felt. No, because there was too much distraction and sparkle. Uh, I didn't say why. Well, I mean, it, like w- when it's not like that, it was very difficult for me. I mean, so even I see you like, you know, going up on a floor. I, I, people say, I don't know how you do the ICU thing or the trauma thing and whatever. I don't know how people do floor nursing. Like I was constantly afraid I was going to forget something or kill someone or, you know, make a meadow error because it's not just an ICU or an ER, you know, you have 
Intensive, you have to do a lot for two people. And usually those two people are right in front of you in two rooms, mm-hmm. right? Or something like that. They try to space things out everywhere, you know. On a floor, you could be walking all the way down the hall and you have six, eight patients and you have to remember all the shit you have to do for them. And it was, it was exhausting and scary for me. Like, you know, I I don't have that kind of brain. Um, yeah. So floor nursing was a, was a nightmare when I get floated up to the floor, you know, you know, when they, when they float you because they're short staffed somewhere else. And yeah, so I got out of nursing because, and even in the ICU, if I didn't have really intense, intensive patients, I would just be squirreling off or, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, but that leads me up to the story about what was your eventual, like, I'm out of the, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this anymore because you were on a floor, weren't you? When you made that matter? Um, yeah, I was, no, no, I was, uh, it was night shift ICU. I was clinical coordinator, uh, which means I kind of do the scheduling, communicate with the nursing supervisor. You know, it's like a glorified charge nurse on night shift. Um, I was also the re we had two new, uh, orientees who were off orientation, but I was like, they're, re- they're recently off orientation. So I was their kind of resource person and they were on their own. I had my own pretty difficult patient assignment, a, um, heart, like a, a somebody who just, you know, the first 12 hours after a heart bypass, their p- patients are usually one-to-one because you're constantly, I mean, it, they're just really busy, really critical, constantly changing drips, lots to monitor. You're basically living for them doing a lot of their, you know, with all these different drips that oh, yeah. change their blood pressure and insulin and all that stuff like that. And it, things calm down typically after about you know 12 hours and they're no longer one-to-one, but I, mine just got off that 12 hours. So still a lot to do and monitor and another patient who was stable. So still to keep an eye on that one though and the other two, and the unit, and um, pharmacy left at midnight. And so we had to mix our own drugs. And, um, if, you know, a doctor ordered an IV or something like that. Um, and I was the IV nurse because everybody on else, which means um, ICU or ER nurses typically get assigned to be the quote-unquote IV nurse for the hospital that I was in because we just do them more often. You know, so if a nurse tries for two sticks to get an IV in and, and doesn't make it, they call the IV nurse, you know, right. and they should, because Makes for sense. anybody listening, you shouldn't have to get jabbed a million times. No. Um, so anyway, so I had to go up to the floor, but you know what, up until about, it was, it was, this is not a rare story. I mean, no. you know, any nurse listening to this is like, yeah. And, um, yeah. And you're exhausted as a 12 hour shift. And this is like my third 12 hour shift. And I had, and I have three little kids at home and, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. didn't really catch up to me until I'm handling it. I'm, I'm doing it mm-hmm. until about 4am when we had to do baths and something just switched. And I was like, so, you know, that's so exhausted. Actually, it typically comes like two thirty three in the morning. If you work night shift, you know, it's like, okay, just got to break through this last one. <laughs> yeah. But I was giving, uh, I was giving my, always, I think was actually giving a medication for another nurse who asked me to give her four o'clock meds. And I gave a beta blocker on a six hour schedule instead of an eight hour schedule. And, um, it wasn't, didn't even change a blip in the blood pressure. And this is not an excuse. Thank God. I'm saying mm-hmm. there was no symptom 
And it was, you know, if I'd waited another hour, it would have been on time. Right. It, it's not about what happened or how benign <clears throat> the meta error was. It was, it was meta error. that it happened. Oh. And it happened because of exhaustion mm-hmm. and overwhelm and too many things to do. And yes, we're have to, you know, you're supposed to look at the bracelet, right? Patient, right? Dose, right? Time, right? Delivery, you know, all that. That's great. But when your brain isn't working and you're just like, get this fucking, just do this, you know, and then, um, shocked the shit out of me because I caught it right away. And I told the, called the nursing supervisor about the med error and said, you know, got to write this up. She's like, oh, you know, nothing happened. Was defending me. I'm like, thanks. I appreciate it. But if this does not get written up and the reasons for it and talked about, then this, the shortage and the way we're kind of just abusing ourselves. It's never going to get fixed. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be any change. And how many are missed? Because that's the attitude. Like, oh, shit, I don't want to get into trouble. I'd rather be fired, you know, yeah. than carry on like this anymore. So anyway, <clears throat> I ended up writing myself up against the nursing supervisor's wishes and went into the uh, uh, nurse manager's office and quit the next morning. So I can't work her. Can't do it. Crazy. So if that didn't happen though, you said, what made you quit? I, I was on the way out cause I, <clears throat> that was 2014 and I'd started patient doing private patient advocacy in 2011. So I was already, you know, out. that was just the thing that kicked me out. But is that, but that's not the thing that made your life look different from one day to the next or is it? No. That was my puddle of snot and tears moment. Um, that was in 2011, October, right after I got through the, the program that you went through, the, um, through with uh, Karen Mershow's RN Patient Advocate Program with the University of, in partnership with the University of Arizona. We did it at uh, the COD Ranch, actually the intensive. And came home, that was in September, I believe, came home and started my business, uh, private patient advocacy. And that's like another tangent we can go on, but. So you were doing that, you were working in the hospital, you were raising three young children, like you were doing all of this leading up to quitting your job in 2014 from the hospital. Yeah. So 2011 was the, that everything looked different from one day to the next moment after I'd gotten through that, gone through that program. Yes. Three kids, night shift job behind the scenes, Nobody knew <laughs> I, uh, brain fog so bad. Uh, I couldn't remember the ends of moments. I'd wake up in the mall with my three kids and not like wake up out of a sleep, like come to with how did we get here? Couldn't remember getting them dressed, getting in the car, driving them to the mall. And this was happening all the time, every day, getting off did the you, phone. Did you think something was wrong or did you not? Did you just, I didn't you- want to look, I knew something was wrong. You did. I mean, yeah, I knew something was really wrong. After my third, I just never quite got, you know, uh, Sophie was born in 2007. And every quarter, every year, I was getting like somebody kept turning up the gravity. I couldn't stay awake in the afternoon. But I was so desperate to be liked, which is kind of the background, uh, so desperate for people to see me as extraordinary that I, come on, just pick yourself up, dust yourself out, off, get back in there. 
but I, after a while, my brain started going, I couldn't recover from uh, things that most people, you know, I, I had chronic Lyme. Uh, I had a systemic yeast overgrowth. I kept getting infections. I just like, it was just like piling on um, until, and I just kept covering it up like more caffeine, uh, a sticky notepad. Uh, my, I called this sticky notepad, my external hard drive. Cause I couldn't remember anything. So I like this, I, you know, my kids were the only one at the school without a Halloween costume. Cause I didn't know what day it was. Couldn't remember to send them to school with a lunch, you know, like I put the lunch on the bus and not the kid or just, you know, um, so then I went to the program because <laughs> that's, you know, well, but where, but why did you even decide that patient, I mean, you were in a fog, you weren't feeling good. You were still trying to keep up the, the facade of flight nurse with Aerosmith in the background. And what made you decide that you needed to do this patient advocacy? Like, what? Oh, there was so many reasons. It was like, I'd been thinking about it for 10 years. I mean, like Karen Mercerow and I came up with the business and the idea. Oh, I mean, I didn't say, I'm sure other people, many other people had the idea, but I started doing kind of pilot, little pilot things, 10 years, same, same year that she started. I even, her website, I had that website first. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, and I was so exhausted and I knew that I had to get out of what I was doing and I didn't want to do it anymore. And I wanted to be kind of conscious. I just thought it would be a great job. Like I thought, you know, oh, I just have to, you know, go to doctor's appointments with patients and help them navigate the healthcare system in a better way and find out about things that can prevent or cure what ails them uh, or regress it. Um, that are things that are going on in different kinds of medicine throughout the globe, you know, cool. I mean, I love to research and learn and I just, so anyway, it was kind of the trajectory and I just felt like, okay, one more, like just pile it on one more thing, one more thing after this, you know, then I'll, then my life can begin. Just get this certificate. Then your life can begin. Then you can take a break. That, and that's it never, not where I was going. Yeah. Then the break never came because there's always like yeah. one more thing, but in that program, uh, a guy came from neuroscience, uh, which was a lab who did neuroadrenal testing and told us about this new field. And it was like, bing, <laughs> like, cause he was describing the symptoms and going over tests. And this is what this test looked like. And this is what the person's symptoms were. And I saw me, mm-hmm. you know, Oh my and gosh. You had, so- and you hadn't ever been really exposed to any of this kind of outside functional, naturopathic medicine, right? So this was sort of a big deal for you. Right. The first night of that intensive at the COD ranch, we did a drum circle and I thought it was ridiculous. (laughs) I thought this very, very hippie shit, you know? No, I was strict. Yeah. No, I was always interested in like quantum kind of woo woo stuff. Like I was always, I loved metaphysical bookstores and crystals and all that stuff, but I didn't let anybody know about it, of course. <laughs> well, it wasn't that sort of a separate in a separate box, anyways, from allopathic. Exactly, there, there was like... never the two shall meet. Um, right. Yeah, and then I remember doing the drum drum circle, looking around, going stupid, and then about <laughs> fifteen minutes into the drum circle, going, "Holy shit! Where am I? <laughs> like, I had an experience first. I'm like, and then I fluffed it off, and then every night she brought in some kind of alternative thing, and totally." 
opened. Uh, something definitely shifted at the end there, but that's another story. Cristobal Fiembrace of, I can't remember what tribe, um, but anyway, he did the healing ceremony. And um, anyway, I won't get into that one. <laughs> you can read about it in the book that I'll never write because I can't focus. Um, <laughs> but one day. Uh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, the neurotransmitter guy, I recognized myself, got home and um, wanted to learn more about it. Went to a neuroscience meeting in my local area. Like they had another lecture and I wanted to learn more about it. And I was trying to network and whatever, um, you know, just pile more shit in my <laughs> useless brain. Um, <laughs> and I met this guy, Jess Armine, and uh, he's kind of a wizard with the neuroadrenal stuff. And I was really into it. So we got talking at this meeting and this lecture thing. And he said that he's like, well, try it. He's like, you know, he said he'd mentor me. So I went to go get my like certification and, I was my first patient. And so we did my test. And the first thing he said when he got that test back was, you're faking it. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, Karen, like if you look at the test, so your, your nervous system has a gas pedal and a brake and there's chemistry associated with each and all the brake pads were in the toilet and all the gas, (laughs) all the gas, like all the adrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, um, PEA, which is associated with focus, concentration, and short-term memory was the, like, it was like the smallest, teeniest, tiniest bit of red slammed all the way over to the left of the scale, meaning there's nothing there. Uh, and then all the buffers, you know, serotonin and GABA, and those are all worn down too. So anyway, he says, um, I see tests 50, 70% better than this, which are still bad. And people are catatonically depressed, suicidal, don't get out of bed, like aedonia, can't, no ability to experience pleasure, can't think, can't function. Hmm. And he's like, and you come off as this happy, bubbly, all go, no quit, never let them see you sweat. You know, he said, (laughs) you're faking it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I knew he was right because how I had been living my life, you said, how did you do that? I just kept pushing on to the next thing. Push, I'll, I'll handle that. I knew something was wrong, but I don't know if I didn't want to look. It was just white noise. It's like, that's how it just felt to be Karen. And when he, we looked at that test together and he showed me how abnormal this is, how, how I'd been living my life. And I saw it. You know, I saw that I was always waiting for the next hill to conquer. And it was killing me. Like I was 37 years old. I'd had, or yeah, I was 37. I had had an eating disorder that almost killed me a couple of times since the age of 11. I, you know, I had a measure of white knuckle control, but, um, you know, uh, keep it in the fairway, uh, constantly worrying about what people thought of me. And that's, I think was the major contributor was I made up and this is what I see now. I didn't at the time, but you know, this is, uh, my ability to look back on how I was into mm-hmm. the white noise of how it felt to be Karen was I didn't want to be left behind. I didn't want to, I wanted, I felt like I had to be a standout and stick out and be extraordinary. And that was how people wouldn't leave me behind. And then I made up, okay, in order to 
not be left behind. I have to be extraordinary and people have to like me in order to be extraordinary. I have to be thin. I have to be pretty. I have to be smart. I have to be witty. I have to, and, and not even what I thought was thin, pretty, smart, witty, what I thought that everybody else thought, you know, it was like, I was constantly in everybody else's head checking these boxes of how am I doing and, you know, keeping up doing so many things like the nursing thing, you know, and then that was that. And, and the kinds of people I, you know, pledging and for a sorority, you know, some of them were so not me that the me part went out, but the whole pledge thing, I was like, that was not me. And I just kept it up and the kinds of friends I hung out with and the kinds of things, whatever, none of it, me, but always what I thought would make me extraordinary, you know? And then as a mom signing up kids for shit they didn't want to do so that we could keep up with all the other people who are miserable in travel sports, you know, and it was just everything. And yeah. So I saw it. And when I saw it, uh, that was my puddle is not in tears moment because I actually thought that if I didn't, if I wasn't extraordinary and if I didn't do all those things and I was left behind, I would die. Like I would just die. But I was, saw how exhausted I was. I can't keep doing this anymore. So it was just my, the day I learned my favorite prayer, (laughs) my favorite prayer and yours. (laughs) Fuck it. Fuck it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I was absolutely certain that I was going to be 500 pounds in a day. And my husband was going to leave me and my kids wouldn't like me anymore. And all the rest of the moms would talk behind my back and my parents would disown me and be disappointed. Um, but, and I would be alone. And it was, I, I, I've said it this, this way just recently. It was, it was the first time I think I really met myself, mm-hmm. you know, because there was nothing else there. Yeah. Uh, there was no, maybe since I was a little kid and started, you know, believing what people said about how you need to act like a lady and that's not funny. And, you know, you know, all the things that kids pick up, it was before I met the person I was before. Uh everyone told me how I ought to be, but yeah, I was just like, it was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't happy. It was actually terrifyingly sad and lonely, but so peaceful. Like all that noise in my head about all the boxes I was checking all day long every day. And even my sticky notepad, I don't know if if I don't, I'm not going to care what people think about me anymore. Why do I have to remember shit? It doesn't matter if you leave the sticky pad in the refrigerator. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who cares? Yeah. Um, but the amazing thing that happened was after I stopped doing all that, I mean, my life didn't look much different. Um, I just didn't care. You know, I didn't make such a big deal if we were late to school because I didn't care what the, if I got a dirty look from the principal, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't like getting an argument with, you know, my husband, but I didn't do, I didn't avoid it. I just kind of sat there and went, no, (laughs) you know, like say no. And then brace yourself. Yeah. Right. But I said, no, you know, and I, I didn't do that before. It was a lot, thousands of tiny little things about how I lived differently. And all of a sudden, like three weeks later, driving in my car, you've heard the story, looking at the clock in my car, and recognizing that it's four o'clock and oh my God, I'm not tired. 
I mean, I was constantly like basically narcoleptic, like that, <laughs> like constantly doing stuff to keep myself awake. And okay, but so you had this test done and I can see like, and, and just clarify for me, like maybe Jess Armine or the two of you together are like, okay, you, you can take this and this and this and this, and then you're going to get all these levels back up and you're going to, you know, your nervous system is going to regulate, but it sounds like you, you started remembering and all that separate from taking something or fixing something. Well, so. yeah, yours. That's a great point. I mean, it's a good point what you're bringing up because yeah, I did start taking supplements. I mean, that was the second half of you get those neuroadrenal tests and then you can supplement with amino acids and different cofactors and kind of get your nervous system back in line. And yeah, I did that for about 30 days, <laughs> you know, and John, our mutual, our mutual friend, John L. Makadem was the one that brought that up to me. Cause I would still argue, well, it was a combination of things. Cause he'd be like, well, so what do you think happened there? And why do you think you were able to do that for other people that I worked with? Um, you know, after me and I'm like, well, it's, you know, supplements and lifestyle change and seeing the world differently. And he's like, yeah. And they were working with you and how you see the world and supplementing. And then they stopped supplementing and they kept getting better. And that's what happened to me. I totally thought it was supplements, thought they were the greatest thing in the world. Um, but yeah, in about 30 days, you know, you know yourself, you know, you start feeling better and well, I keep forgetting to take my supplements. Well, because you're not so desperate to feel better anymore because you feel better. I always contended it was a combination of things, but now I think. What was it then? I think it was just finally giving my nervous system a break. I was living on red alert all the time for what people thought of me. Red alert. From the moment my feet hit the ground in the morning to the moment I went to bed at night, uh, thinking about me, how am I doing? So much focus on myself. You know, I thought it was everybody else, but it was really like, how am I doing? Am I extraordinary? What's the next hill I have to conquer? Yeah. You know, then my life can begin. When I have the right number on the scale, when I have the right measure of success, how other people see me, when I have the right number in the bank account. When I have the right car, when my kids do the right things, then my life can begin. Then my life can begin. And it was a constant red alert. Hypervigilance is the other word I use. And that just went, it was, it was just gone. And I'm not saying it didn't, didn't occur again, but it was those, it was going from what it was to what it became. I think it just gave my, and now I know after years of research and, and curiosity about what happened, not only for me, but other people, that cognitive dissonance, that constant red alert or cognitive dissonance being when your outward behaviors don't reflect your inward values and beliefs. Like when you say, no, yeah, sure. I'll go to lunch with you. And I, you really don't like the person or yeah, sure. I'll be a nurse. And <laughs> you know, be a writer. it's just a constant friction. You can feel it mm -hmm. when you say yes to something and you don't want to, uh, that yeah. uh, it's friction in the nervous yeah. system yep. that is creating oxidative stress. It's a little bit of a, uh, a fight or flight stress hit. It's, and over years, it's just wears your body down, creates inflammation. And I, and I think there's something to be said for kind of noticing that friction. Like if you can notice it, because that sense, like, 
just as an example, yesterday, I, you know, had a talk with somebody on, um, who was feeling really ill and, and, and I kind of got on this, like my intentions were good, but I kind of got on the soapbox sort of a, well, this is what's worked for me. And I was sharing from my own experience, but when I hung up the phone, there was that little friction of, oh my gosh, like, what if he thinks I was just trying to lecture him? Or what if he thinks that like, I wasn't helpful, or maybe I should email him and just tell him how, like, it, you know, uh, you know, that he can do it and just give him a little bit more of a, right? Like that friction. And I was like, and the noticing of it of, oh, like I feel that fiction. And so I want to do something to people please or to, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so, Still do. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you find that you are, since you can notice it more often that you don't, you, you know, you don't, you don't act on it as much or how does that manifest for you? Um, or does it go away? I Yeah. No. Yeah. It's such a useful, it's like the hotter, colder thing, you know? It, you're getting colder if you feel that friction. Doesn't mean you don't, you, you just don't ever say yes when you mean no or no when you mean yes or do something. You just, it becomes intolerable. You do it a heck of a lot less because that feeling, it's just like when I'm out of an integrity and you start calling yourself out on your own bullshit because that's what releases the pressure and the valve of that right. friction, right? Exactly, yeah. Like I tell the story of this, the sushi bar when I kept saying yeah, yeah. yes to the waiter's water because I wanted the waiter to like me and notice that friction. Why am I drinking this? Why am I saying yes to water? Why am I, why do I need the waiter to like me? And then calling myself out to my daughter going, I'm drinking water. I'm not thirsty for it. She's like, why would you do that? Because <laughs> like, I want the waiter to like me. And then you laugh at yourself and it releases the valve, you know, but yeah, the, you notice the feeling a lot faster mm -hmm. and it just becomes intolerable, Yeah, but it's still there. I, I think you just keep learning. You just keep learning and listening to it for the rest of your life. It's there for a reason. You're out of integrity with yourself. So let's jump back just a little bit because you said something about how you just got really curious to know more. And so, um, I want to know how that started to manifest in your career and what you decided to do with, you know, nursing and patient advocacy from that point. Um, because you got better, right? You got better from chronic. I lines. got better and I helped other people, uh, get better. I think, and what John pointed out was, maybe it was working with me and how I now saw the world that actually, which was kind of helping them be less hypervigilant, non-red alert need to be. Ex now I call it, I'm a professional a standard lower or, or um, awesome. I help. I, I'm professor. I'm the professor of the college that helps people get PhDs in mediocrity. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, put the stick down. Uh, and the dirty little secret is when you stop trying so hard to be what the world says you ought to be, your world becomes extraordinary in ways you couldn't have imagined because it's, you're extraordinary. But anyway, that gets a little bit of uh, cliche. <laughs> uh, my health journey, our favorite phrase. <laughs> Tell me about your health, your journey to wellness. Your journey to wellness. Yes. <laughs> Ugh, I hate that. Yeah. Uh, so how it manifested in my career, I'd say, is fast forward through some of those clients and stuff like that. I just, you know, was like, I just started more of the trajectory of where I was going started 
getting me down that hyper-focused rabbit hole of my hair could be on fire. Like I started getting obsessed. Um, I went into corporate wellness and I was lecturing a lot about, like I just learned, you know, about functional integrative medicine. And so I'm going and doing these nutritional counseling programs and stress management and all that stuff that we learned in the functional medicine shizzle, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And then I read Anita's book, Anita Morjani, and just felt like instantly such a, I'm not getting something major here. So here's this woman riddled with lymphoma in a coma, multi-system organ failure. Family's going to discontinue life support. She has a near-death experience and is cancer-free. I think it's 30 days or 60 days later. Right. Nobody, nobody comes back from that. Or very few people. And I want to know who else came back from that. What happened there? She didn't start a diet. She actually stopped being vegan. She didn't start meditating or managing her stress. She actually stopped trying so hard. She stopped all the things she was doing to try to prevent cancer. She got cancer and she dies. And the thing that brought her back is when she stopped trying so hard, when she saw that when she met her father, you know, as she was having this experience and she saw that cancer was just a symptom, fear was the disease. And then I started recognizing, so if that's possible for one person, then what am I telling everybody about this stress management, nutrigenomics, got to make piling on, scaring them about all the toxins, you know, like if you can recover from, I have a spontaneous remission from terminal lymphoma, you're on your deathbed and you can eat Doritos. Like that's a, such a win. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Why am I scaring people about the stuff in their pantries when that's not what happened? And if she's capable of that, we all are, because we all are made of the same hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and stardust, right? We all have the same. So what is that? So then I go down a rabbit hole with spontaneous remission, who else, and near-death experience stuff, and kind of combining and seeing the trends um, and these similarities. And then now I want to know the science behind it. You know, now I want to know what's actually going on. So this was over the course of like, mine was 2011, started doing corporate wellness, I think 2014 or 15, read Anita's book. No, wait, no, no, no. I'm sorry. It was on my timelines off because I met John in, no, Supercoach 2016 was, yeah. So it was like 2014 to 2016. I was down this rabbit hole and actually met John because I was trying to figure out a way. I got the science, but I'm trying to combine everything and describe to people what actually is happening in the biology when they drop this fear and find the courage to be disliked and, you know, what actually, how that affects the biology to the point of curing cancer spontaneously. And then meet John, go to Supercoach Academy 2016. And it was in 2017 we did, okay, I think I understand the science behind this. Let's take people with the same kind of issues we had and the same kind of issue of other people we work with, which is these diagnoses of exclusion, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, chronic Lyme, some autoimmune issues. And uh, yeah, and so we did a study and kind of explained what we thought was going biolog on biologically in the, in the paper. And that was finally published, uh, what's 2021, about a year ago in 2020 well, in the... What did you find when you guys were running people through this program? That 
Um, I think it was a t- total of 25 people. There was an experimental group and the control group, quote unquote control. So we didn't do anything with one group. And then the experimental group, we took, put them through eight weeks of concepts, different ways of seeing the world. If you think that the world is not a safe place, unless you're extraordinary, or if you're constantly worrying what people are thinking about you, or if you're constantly worrying about symptoms, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is about some people, it's health anxiety. Like they're always checking themselves. Is that a symptom? You know, like, Oh my gosh, I got a pain in my back. Is it a tumor or did a slip disc or what is it? And they're constantly checking. They got it. You know, got it. Why, why are they constantly checking? What's behind that? Mm -hmm. Typically it's because I need to be whole. I need to be strong so that it can be extraordinary. You know, it all kind of comes back to, well, uh, Adler, Adlerian psychology or Adlerian philosophy. He said all problems, all suffering is due to interpersonal problems. Like if there were no other people in the world, would you care that your back hurt? You know, would you, would you care that what people thought? Like, no, there's nobody, nobody else here. Um, But yeah, you could really go down a rabbit hole with that thought experiment. It's kind of like, would you give a shit about this? Yeah. Nobody likes to be in pain. I don't think wild animals enjoy pain, but they don't suffer because they're not comparing themselves to other people who are pain-free, <laughs> you know? Totally. So anyway, that's an interesting thought experiment, but we took, we put them through eight weeks of concepts kind of things, how we saw the world. And we use the metaphor of you of a leaky bucket, like your health, your energy, your vitality is like a leaky bucket. We all have holes in our bucket. You know, um, we're all, nobody's getting out of this thing alive. I mean, there's always going to be illnesses and leaks and whatever, but when you have major holes of how you see the world and understanding, like, I'm not going to be okay unless people like me, that was my whale mammoth hole. Right. And it was draining my system, constantly trying to check boxes to please other people or, you know, control others. what I thought I could control other people's perception of me, which can't, but anyway, huge drain on my system. And I tried to fill the hole, fill the bucket from the top with covering things to cover it up. My sticky note pad, vitamins, exercise, supplements, vacation. Then it became tapping emotional freedom technique, you know, even shoving my fingers down my throat after I ate meals was something I was putting in the bucket you know, because the big hole was, you know, so whether it's something healthy or uh, unhealthy behavior, uh, you're always trying to fill the bucket. Well, the bucket fills itself. I mean, it's a self-fulfilling bucket. So if you plug the hole, you don't have to keep putting supplements and medications and doctor visits and massage therapy. All those are great things. There's nothing wrong with those. But what happened with Anita, you know, Anita Morjani was filling it with veganism and Aravita and all this, you know, meditation and karma, bloody blah, you know, in order to prevent herself from getting cancers. Well, when she plugged up the hole, Oh, it's because I was afraid all the time. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of disappointing people. I was afraid of feeling pain. I was afraid of cancer. I was afraid she lived in fear, plugged up the hole and the bucket filled up and her health, you know, the body was able to achieve homeostasis. So it's eight weeks it was eight weeks of pointing people to different holes in the bucket and kind of playing, you know, you, you've been through it, but you know, in 2017, it was the first time we did it. So 
And I mean, within a week of the eight week program, some people like literally were saying I'm better. Like people who were sick with chronic fatigue syndrome for like four years and couldn't walk their kids to school and were bed bound, you know, some things happened immediately for some people and some things took a while. We followed them for six months, but, uh, and then we, so that was statistically significant improvements in energy, uh, global well-being scores. I don't have the, all the things we measured in front of me, um, headaches, you know, like pain, mm-hmm. like lots of improvements. Some people like anecdotally just said, yeah, I'm not sick anymore. And then, um, so that was kind of miraculous because things pacing, cognitive based therapy, the other stuff that's out there for chronic fatigue, it doesn't work long-term. Uh, it doesn't really work well. Uh, and this was what John and I experienced, you know, and then all these other people, it's just plugged the holes in the bucket and there wasn't a chronic tax on the nervous system and the body and chronic inflammation from that. And the body could heal and return itself to homeostasis. And then we did the uh, control group and got the same kind of results. I mean, some of them really dramatic. One lady was sick for, she was diagnosed with chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, maybe both, you know, uh, at the age of 22, 26. And she was 66. So she was sick. You know, she always thought of herself as unwell and sick and sometimes homebound and bedbound and whatever. And um, for my, it was like for a couple months after the study, she was driving across the country and visiting an old friend. And she sent a picture of it. She's never, she was working in her garden. You know, one guy that had been in a wheelchair, uh, he hadn't climbed a flight upstairs since 2011. Maybe, yeah. And then he was in a wheelchair, I think, since 2014. Um, not because of any spinal injury, but just because he was so tired and could do less and less. And his, so his legs started after being, and he, he couldn't, couldn't move. Like he was so exhausted all the time. Um, halfway through the eight weeks, he was, took a video of himself on a skateboard in his kitchen, pushing himself back and forth. And now we're, um, three years out and he's back at school, really active in his community. It's amazing. Yeah. So it seems like what you're saying is that, you know, our biology is designed to heal. So we are designed to heal. And when you quit trying so hard and you allow your body to do that, then you allow your body to do that. It's the trying that makes us sick, the supplements, the whatever, the, 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 um, wanting to people please the trying to make sure that everybody likes you that just trying everything. Yeah. I mean, that's, like, that's a word. Gonna... That's, that's your word. I mean, I've heard you use that word before the trying. Um, yeah. What's your word? I don't know. I'm trying. Well, that's, <laughs> that's maybe scroll off on your word. Trying like, what's my word? You know, all treatments are palliative, not curative. Life is a sexually transmitted terminal condition. So I, I hesitate to say that, you know, everything's like, none of us are going to live forever. But what I think, like in palliative care, what makes our lives shorter and of less quality while we're living them, less able to heal from infections and bangs and things like that, that, you know, makes the world feel like somebody turned up the gravity for us is that constant trying 
it's the hypervigilance for whatever is your hypervigilant thing. You know, the health anxiety was, was yours, right? Like constantly checking. Um, I know a lot of people like that. How about uh, people that are caught up in, in their businesses or caught up in relationships, kind of it's all across the board, right? Right. And what is underlying all that? So whether it's health things that constantly checking for health anxiety, constantly checking, how do people think about me constantly checking them in the, in the right relationship? Do I need to get out of the, I mean, like, <laughs> like uh, constantly checking my weight. I mean, that was one of them before my feet even hit the ground in the morning. You know, what is the scale going to say about my value? It's like a inversely proportional measurement of my value that day. Right. You know, and, uh, Anyway, but what is under all of that? What does everybody want? You know, whether it's the health or the the people that like you or the success or the right way. What is it? It's you. Like, what do you get when you get that? What do you? What do you get? Mm-hmm. Then I, my life can begin. You know, then I'll have peace. And I think under all of it is always just peace of mind. And it's not actually a lack of symptoms. It's, you know, it's not actually for people like you. That's what we get tricked into thinking. It's because if everybody likes me, when I finally get there, then I won't have to try so hard. Right. (laughs) So that was what, so that is literally the thing that made one day look different from the next, because when you saw all that, there was more peace of mind. Yeah. Finding the courage to be disliked. Is what has made all the difference. And fuck it. And fuck it. My favorite prayer. Fuck it. Amen. (laughs) Amen, sister. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, man. It's, and it has huge implications, you know, like that study and like, it's such a great, that's what John and I call the program foundations for health, because it's like to, to use alongside of any conventional, integrative medical treatment, you know, like chilling the nervous system and the inflammatory cycle and all that stuff down with your mind. The mind has such a profound effect on the biology. I mean, the three things that make us sick, environmental, microbial, and psychological. And thing about the psychology is if you're constantly running your psychology and all your energy and resources are going toward that hypervigilant. <laughs> what do people think of me? Oh my gosh. Right. Am I okay? What's, what's the symptom? Like all day long, every day, then your immune system's not going to function. But the other thing is that constantly running psychology will create inflammation. So, so it seems like that is the piece, the foundation. Because foundation. if you have a toxicity or there's some microbial, yeah, you can get better from that. But if you're running, that monkey mind, that psychology the whole time, like how are you going to allocate resources to stuff that, you know, you could do something about, you wouldn't be able to, cause you'd be so wrapped up in the psychology. So it seems like that's the foundation of health. Yeah. Like that sweetens the terrain for healing. Mm-hmm. Right. Know? Which is amazing. Like, can you imagine if patients had, if every sick person had a foundation of health as part of they're healing. Yeah. It'd be amazing. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's my, that's my deal. Um, well, well, where did, where did, um, where did renegade come from? Is this a trick question? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there's this girl, Antra, uh, 
You might know her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the inspiration behind Renegade was that, you know, we always knew we'd do something together. I know. And we kept we picking kept... at that scab. <laughs> totally. <laughs> For lack of a better term. And CEs. Yeah. Was that something? Oh, we were thinking of something we could do to purchase or maybe combine or join the RNP. We wanted to have a stream of revenue. And so we were kind of open to inspiration and ideas. And we thought we were going to just package things, you know, the, our functional medicine lectures and stuff like that for CEs and which would be a lot of editing. And so that was kind of the idea, make CEs more interesting. Right. Right. We kind of had that well, thing that we wanted to do. But out of Inspirational, the motivational, up-leveling, up some new kind of, you know, new delivery. Mm-hmm. And that was there. That was the foundation of the inspiration. It was, you know, CEs, which is like scratching our own itch. And then I was, uh, I don't know, no, I don't think You're we had the name for it. Yeah, I was walking, uh, I was taking a hike and listening to James Nestor on a Joe Rogan interview. He was interviewing, uh, Joe Rogan was interviewing James Nestor. He'd written a book, Breathe. And the thing I found so fascinating was James Nestor's story because he was so screwed up as a kid because he had these narrow face. And I didn't know how much the facial structure had to do mm-hmm. with all of these ailments people have and, yeah. you know, asthma and all this stuff. And I found it fascinating. And it was so much great information mm-hmm. through the Trojan horse of his great story, right. how his life absolutely changed and, you know, really cool techniques to bring it home and whatever. And before I knew it, I listened to a two and a half hour podcast, probably learned so much, mm-hmm. was going to use it in my own life would make it, at least it's part of my uh, subconscious and my psychology when I'm listening to other people and my clients like, oh, maybe this could be a problem. You know, maybe this could be something that they can also improve. Mm-hmm. Here, read this book. It'll help you, you know. Um, so, yeah, definitely an up level. And why is that not worth the CE? All you have to do is an activity associated with that. And there's one or two CEs. Why aren't we doing that? Right? <laughs> Best inspiration ever. So, um, you are probably one of the most inspirational, amazing human beings I've ever met. I love your story. I hope that nurses, well, I know nurses will find the Trojan horse of your story helpful in their own lives because how relatable are you? And you're a nurse, right? And how many nurses do you think feel like you have felt in your nursing career? And how many of us as nurses and women, I don't know about the men nurses, but um, have wanted to be people pleasers, have wanted to, you know, be extraordinary, be special, be noticed. Like, I just think it's everything that you have shared with us is so relatable. Yeah. I think people pleasing is on like the job description of most nurses, but you know what I would like people to see because my life you know, everybody thinks that they have to switch their job or get out of their job in order to be okay. Like that's yeah. once I get out of the job, then my life can begin. Right. You talked about that a lot. Like once, once I get here, once I do this. Yeah. But what I found in that moment and so many times afterward, it's not true. Yeah. You can, you can, yeah, still change jobs if that, but everything can look different from one day to the next, even though nothing about your life has changed. That's and it's, it, I mean, people, that, that can't possibly be. I mean, it's got to be my job. It's not. It's how you are within it. And it doesn't mean you need to stay in your job. It just means like you could find a lot more peace of mind 
when you, when you get curious about what is it about this that I'm suffering and And for me, it was, I mean, in that job, yeah, I, I quit because it was time, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the job. If I, no, it was how I was in the job, how I was not speaking out, doing things at that pace, um, not asking for help because I needed to be extraordinary. And it was paying attention to what it was like to be Karen. I think that you noticed what it was like to be you and then you saw the suffering and then, you know, like, so I guess what I'm hearing you say is that like, you don't have to leave a job. You don't have to do, you know, you, you don't have to do any of that if you can pay attention to what it's like to be you. Yeah. Like be you in the job first and then you might still leave it because it's not for you. But like, so much of the noise in my head on those shifts and so much of what exhausts me, I'm sure any nurse listening to this can relate. How many times are you comparing how you're doing to other nurses, to other people, or to some, yeah, or to some made up version of you, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not living up to this. I'm not Uh, charting as fast. How the hell do they get all their charts done before me? You know, like, oh my gosh, I'm late. I'm 10 minutes late for this medication. And oh my like constantly comparing myself to this made up version of myself that I ought to be or other people, whatever. What if that comparison was gone? What if you could just do it as well as you can do it with integrity, Adlerian psychology, not compare yourself to yourself as you want to be or other people, whatever, how much more quiet and peaceful would that shift? Even if you don't particularly like the work, your coworkers, you know, how much of that TikTok lateral workplace violence and he said, she yeah. said, what if you could, what if you could see that that's all just noise in your head that you don't even have to, it's just the radio station that's playing right now. And the less change, you pay attention to it, it would change the quieter it gets. It would change healthcare. It would change nursing. It would, ch- it would change if everybody did that. At the very least, we'd have happier, less exhausted people, less yep. burnout. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So much possibility. I love it. So inspirational. Closes biatch out. All right. Well, thanks Over for and out. Thanks for asking me questions and allowing me to do my favorite thing, which is talk about myself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the RNA Gade podcast. If you're a nurse and would like a CE for listening to this, go over to the rnagade.pro website. Andra, spell that for me, please. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E dot pro. Thank you. So go on the website, find the podcast, do the activity. And if you have any questions, contact us and we'll be happy to help. And if you can't figure it out, good luck.